You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the famous rebellion chapter in Dostoevsky's great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Ivan Karamazov does not offer logical proof that the universe does not admit of a divine creator. Instead, he rehearses the suffering of children in the world and says that if God needs those children to suffer, even if only one must suffer, he'll just hand it all back. Tom Ward isn't simply rehearsing Dostoevsky in his new book, God Can't, but you listeners should find some of his inquiries familiar, and Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Tom back on the show. Tom, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be talking with you, Nathan. Well, I have a hunch that many of our readers are going to pull up short at the title, so talk to us a little bit about God Can't. This book sets up that subject and predicate against some more commonly written sentences about God and evil. What are those alternatives, and why should our listeners prefer God Can't? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that the, the title God Can't is going to jar some people. In fact, that's part of the reason I chose title, I, to grab some attention. But it's not just a, a publicity stunt. I really do believe that God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. Uh, you know, a lot of people who believe in God uh, want to try to figure out why there's so much evil in the world if God is loving and powerful. And a good number of them will say something like, uh, well, God could stop this, but God won't do so because, you know, either God decides to respect the freedom of creatures or it's a part of some greater good uh, or it's uh, some part of a mysterious plan we can't figure out or, you know, maybe God is mad and or whatever. Um, I don't find those answers and any of the more traditional answers in themselves to give a very satisfactory uh, response. In fact, I don't think any of them really solves the problem of evil. But in this little book, actually stick neck way out and propose to have solved the problem of evil. And uh, I think that problem has various dimensions. And so this chapter has uh, various um, key statements but the one that I think is at the very center is this idea that God simply can't do some things. Well, very good. This book is a callback in a lot of ways to your previous book that we talked about on this show, The Uncontrolling Love of God. Uh, and it makes reference to the way that readers have responded to that pretty frequently. So, you know, I came to think as I was reading this as, as, as a sort of volume two of that work, um, and incidentally, listeners, you can hear us talk about that on Christian Humanist Profiles, episode 102. Uh, in your mind, Tom, I mean, you know, what is the relationship between these two books? Yeah, there's definitely a relationship. Uh, the, the basic theme that God's love is uncontrolling uh, is found in both books. But that previous book was actually published by an academic press or the academic arm of a press. And although I tried hard to write an understandable language, and I think it's not your typical academic book, um, it was still pretty thick for most people, still pretty complex. Um, it's not the kind of book I could easily give my mother to read, for instance. <laughs> um, I wanted to write a book that was far more accessible, one that you could actually hand somebody who doesn't have a degree in theology 
they could read it and understand it all. And I also wanted to add some additional ideas that aren't found in the uncontrolled love of God. In fact, only the first chapter, which is entitled God Can't Prevent Evil, only that one is uh, linked directly to the main idea of the uncontrolled love. There are four additional ideas that, you know, relate to the idea that God's love is uncontrolled, but they're, they're not expressed in the previous book. All right. So, I mean, for our listeners out there, I mean, would you recommend that they read God Can't first and then go more in-depth with Uncontrolling Love, or what order would you recommend? That's a good question. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. I well, now they're both out some, there, so you gotta, you got to make yeah. a call, Tom. I, I probably would suggest this new one first, God Can't, because it lays out the broad ideas in a really understandable way. And then those people who say, yeah, but what about X or what about Y? They'll probably get some of the more detailed answers in The Uncontrolling Love of God. Okay, fair enough. Well, I want to dig into that first uh, belief. You know, you lay out this book in five big beliefs uh, that solve that problem of evil. Uh, and the first one is what you just discussed, namely that God can't single-handedly prevent evil in the world. So what does this book mean by single-handedly, uh, and what work does that assertion of limitation do for those people who are troubled by evil in the world? Yeah, so um, I think that God's primary characteristic is self-giving, others-empowering love. That is, to use kind of technical language, this kind of self-giving, empowering love comes logically first in God's nature, which means that God gives freedom to complex creatures, uh, agency or self-organization to lex complex creatures and entities, uh, the very blah-like regularities of the universe, etc., and God does this because that's just who God is. That's God's nature. And um, that means, then, if God necessarily gives this freedom, agency, organization, existence to others, God can't withdraw it. God can't override it. God can't decide not to give it. And therefore, God simply can't prevent what creatures do in response to that gift. And I think that word standardly, what talk about this inherent call of a loving relationship that God not only gives to, you know, complex creatures with a degree of freedom like you and me, but also all creation. And so I'm denying the notion that God could uh, unilaterally or uh, by absolute fiat or as a cause bring about some state of affairs because God's love is inherently social. God is an inherently a social being who always invites cooperation and hoping that cooperation is positive, but not able to prevent it when it's not positive. All right. And that leads to, I mean, one of the really stark claims of this book as I read it, namely that you are here to solve the problem of evil. Uh, I've certainly read books that engage with it, that try to lay out its contours, so on and so forth. This book is going to solve it. And it made me think of a range of writers. And I mean, I'm thinking Stanley Fish. I'm thinking Pete Rollins. I'm thinking David Bentley Hart. Uh, these folks say that any theory that solves the problem of evil has stopped talking about evil and has started talking about something else. 
So why does your project differ on that point? Yeah, that's a that's a interesting claim. Um, let me first begin by saying that there are a lot of pretty smart Christians, in fact, theists even from the Christian tradition, who have given up to solve the problem of evil. And the best they're trying to do is play defense. They're trying to give a defense of why it might be rational to continue to believe in God, even evil in the world. And so they're asking their, you know, the rest of us, the, the most, the common person, as well as other more sophisticated thinkers, to, you know, somehow prove that there can't be a God, instead of taking upon themselves to show why it's reasonable, why it's plausible, that there is a God, despite all this evil. So I think they're, that's a chicken move. <laughs> I think that uh, they're not really uh, playing fair. Um, I think we're actually called to give an account of the hope that lies within us, which means that we should have some plausible reasons. We should give some rationale that goes beyond, well, you just can't prove the God. And to those people who say, as you put it, that uh, any theory that tries to solve the problem of evil has stopped talking about evil and start talking about something else. Um, I'm not quite sure what they mean by that. It, it, it sounds as if, and this is me speculating, I don't want to paint anybody wrongly here, but it's to me like people who say that are so committed to a particular view of God's power, they're not willing to rethink that commitment. In fact, I sometimes, I'll, let me pick on Pete Rollins, since I know Pete and we've talked, he's a friend. I think Pete Rollins is far too conservative. He's way <laughs> too conservative. I do. I mean, he's, what he's doing, he wants to be, you know, radically, wants the envelope, but deep down, he's really hanging on to these fundamental claims shaped strongly by Neoplatonic philosophy about who God is and God's, you know, into power in particular. I first noticed this uh, a year or so ago when he was, I listened to a podcast he did when he was talking about love. And the way he understands love is so shaped by Augustine and Aquinas and the Neoplatonic tradition. And in my view, not well shaped by the biblical account of love acting to promote well-being. But I say all this to say that if you think that trying to solve the problem of evil is going beyond what's possible or even uh, righteous, I don't know what the, uh, is you're being misled, that I want to say, um, look, there are a lot of really serious-minded atheists out there who don't believe in God and don't believe in God because of the problem of evil. Um, are you trying to say that we shouldn't try to give some an account? We shouldn't try to witness to the love of God? And even more, I think, believers out there who want to believe in a loving and powerful God, but for whom this problem has uh, made it difficult for them to have any confidence in claims about what God might be up to, what God might be doing, and who God is. They'll just pull out that mystery card quickly, just about as quickly as the conversation gets started. And I think those people also need, deserve, would like to have at least an account that's different from the traditional one that just can't answer that question. All right. Let me follow up on that just a little bit because I think oh. part of the aesthetic case for not solving the problem of evil is that once it is solved, 
uh, then it becomes a part of a system and therefore it loses its character as scandal. So in other words, uh, if evil is simply something, you know, that is part of the way things are, uh, then the prayers for God to blast away evil, uh, to use John Levinson's very memorable phrase, uh, I mean, start to sound delusional, frankly. Well, I mean, what would you say to that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good thought. In my view, that's different from the problem of evil as understood traditionally. You know, the, the traditional problem of evil is why doesn't a powerful and loving God prevent genuine evil in the world? Um, and the worry is that if God has the kind of power available to prevent it, God ought to use it. Now, I'm saying God doesn't have that kind of power. Mm -hmm. Now, if you change the question, if you change the question, you say, well, why is there evil at all? Why mm -hmm. is even the possibility of evil? Well, that's a slightly different question. Not an answer that I think helps with that one. But that answer is going to say, well, as long as you you know, solve this theoretically, then evil just disappears. There's still the ongoing work to overcome evil, which, you know, as you know, I address uh, near the end of the book. Sure, but sure. I think that's a little bit different question than what the classical worry is that brings some people to atheism. Okay, all right. Well, I want to move on uh, from the prevention of evil question to the question of compassion. And this one, I mean, when I was reading it, it didn't strike me nearly as controversial. Uh, it seems like most people I talk yeah. to would say that God is compassionate, but you do outline several views of God that deny divine compassion. So what reasons do those theologies have for downplaying or even dismissing divine compassion as part of God's character, and why are they wrong? Yeah, there's several here. Let me just sort of pick out the sort of core notion that I think is at stake, and that core notion is, do or does what creatures do in the world really affect God? That you know, brings the question about whether or not God has emotions and those kinds of things. But the fundamental question is, can we really have an effect on God? And many classic formal theologians have said, nope, we do not affect God. Now, fortunately, in my view, the vast majority of believers throughout the ages have not agreed with the formal theologians. The vast majority have followed the piety. In their piety, they followed the, the image of God of Scripture. And the God of Scripture is clearly affected by what goes on in the world. Even those who deny divine pass, or passability will admit that the Bible paints a picture of a God who is affected by others. Sure, they'll just dismiss well, it as anthropomorphism. That's right. Yeah, they'll just say we're just projecting unto God, which I think is a baloney ideas. objection. But keep rolling, keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. So in this particular chapter, I not only want to reject the classical view of divine impassibility and say that God really is affected by what we do, not only just sort of for the sake of you know theoretical or formal theology, but also for the sake of I think a real existential psychological need that many people, maybe even all people, but many people have. And that is the idea that God really understands them, really feels what they feel, really you know, undergoes their pain and joy. Um, and one of the stories I tell in this chapter is 
a story uh, which my wife comes home from her student teaching and is really frustrated and had a rotten day. And she starts to tell me what's happened and starts crying and we're sitting on our kitchen floor and, and me being the naive and inexperienced young husband that I was, I heard her horrible situation and I immediately clicked into solve it mode, you know? It's to fix the problem. So I started giving her advice on what she could do the next day. And at one point, she, she blurted out something like, I don't want you to fix this. I'm trying to process my feelings. And I think what she was trying to say is that, look, what we want sometimes is someone who can feel with us. We want what Alfred North Whitehead calls the fellow sufferer who understands. And I think that's important. I also should say that this idea that God suffers with us, even though it was denied by many formal theologians in, in history, it's actually a lot more common even amongst formal or professional theologians today. And in my view, unfortunately, becomes really the only answer uh, theologians will give sometimes to the problem of evil. So if you say, why doesn't a loving and powerful God prevent evil? They'll say, God, the suffering God, God suffers with us. And I want to say, yep, I totally agree. But it's got to be more than that. You know, it's got to be more than just saying God suffers with us. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a function of a lot of people getting assigned uh, Ely Weissel's book, Night, as freshmen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's a powerful book. Oh, it really is. It really is. But it also became a cliche of sorts. Yep, it sure did. Yeah, imagine right now, let's say that instead of doing this podcast uh, a long way away from each other, let's say we were having this conversation, I don't know, in a local coffee shop. Okay. And imagine that uh, there's an earthquake and it's a really rocking this coffee shop and the walls start falling in and a big beam falls down and crushes you against the floor amidst the rubble and it's laying on you in such a way that you uh it's laying on your chest and you're having a really difficult time breathing and you're probably going to die unless that big beam gets shoved off of you because it's you know it's suffocating you and suppose I walk up to you in this condition and I realize that I'm able to push off that beam so that you don't suffocate. But I say to myself, you know what true love is in this situation? True love is just suffering with those who suffer. So I walk up to you, Nathan, and I say, hey, hold my hand, buddy. You know, I know I could push this off your chest and save your life, but I just want to know that you to know that I love you and I'm, I'm here with you in this de desperate time. No one would think I'm a real loving guy if I didn't shove off the beam and save your life. And yet a lot of people somehow think that just because God suffers, which I agree with and think is really important, but just because God suffers, that's enough to solve the problem of evil. I think we also have to say God simply can't prevent that evil single-handedly. We'll return to this. We'll return to this. But I want to turn to healing because it, it's, it's a related question, I think. Uh, because in your account of healing, you say that God is always healing all the time in every place, but that sometimes reality refuses the healing. Now, that formula, I mean, it, it's consistent with your project so far, to be sure. Uh, but the part of that, that took me back... Uh, 
is when you say on, and it's on page 97 in the galleys that I've got, uh, that believing in a God who's mysterious isn't really believing. Or at least I think you said that. If I'm misrepresenting you here, help me understand. But if not, I mean, what is the problem intellectually with affirming God as a mystery? Gotcha. Yeah, I don't think I say it quite the way you said it, but I do come down pretty hard on the mystery position. Mm -hmm. Let uh, Let me distinguish between two kinds of mystery. One kind of mystery is the mystery that I think everybody should affirm that says, look, we cannot figure God out. We are fools if we think we understand God fully. We uh, never have, never will. God is beyond our comprehension. That kind of mystery I'm on board with, and I think if you don't believe in that kind of mystery, you've probably got some pride issues or something. (laughs) But there's a second kind of mystery, and this is the kind of mystery that is inside one's particular view of God. So in other words, it's not a mystery about whether or not we can know God fully. It resides in the midst of these other kinds of claims. This is the kind of mystery card that gets pulled out when people get argued into a corner and they don't have a good solution, so they just pull out the card that says, you know, God's ways are not our ways, and they plunk it on the table instead of trying to reformulate their basic assumptions about whatever it is the issue is. I think playing the mystery card in that way is unfair. And I think if that's what we, we're talking about when we're talking about mystery, and especially when we're talking about God and these fundamental issues about God and power, I mean God's power and God's love, then I think that's the wrong way to talk about mystery. I think uh, if you get in a situation where you can't understand how these things are going to relate, you should admit that you haven't got it figured out and try to rethink some of your other views. All right, all right. Now, part of what makes your theology interesting, Tom, and I do enjoy reading your books, I think this is the third or fourth of your books that I've read, is oh, that... thank you. Oh, absolutely. But your critiques of medieval and Reformation theology swerve in ways that I'm not smart enough to predict. And <laughs> the one in this book that really took me off guard... Uh, is that your affirmation that healing persists after death. Uh, What does the afterlife look like if you're operating in this uncontrolling love framework? Yeah. um, uh, I want to, I believe there's good reasons to believe there's subjective experience beyond bodily death. Mm -hmm. I obviously can't know this. Um, I'm making this claim based upon, you know, um, not only scriptural kinds of things, but other religious traditions and even those who aren't, you know, other traditions that even aren't uh, theistic, but also upon, you know, the kinds of claims we hear from people who've had near-death experiences and uh, out-of-body experiences and that kind of thing. So I admit that this is uh, some wild speculation, but I don't think it's, you know, so wild as to have no basis whatsoever. Um, if we believe in something like a better life after we die, uh, you know, what most Christians call heaven or the good life or, you know, bliss or something All right, like that. Right, the age to come in the Book of Common yes. Prayer. Yeah, yeah. Um, it seems like we should try to think carefully about what that might look like and how that might come about, given 
what we think are going to be some continuities with this life, but also some discontinuities. And the biblical writers struggle with trying to figure out exactly how we're going to continue to have this experience beyond bodily death, what I think is a subjective experience. And one possibility is that we continue on as souls. Another possibility is that we get spiritual bodies, and there are probably some other options in there, but those are the two main ones. Uh, my argument in this healing chapter is that God is always working all the time to heal to the greatest extent possible, and this healing can occur as creatures cooperate or the conditions of creation are, are correct or conducive in some way. And then I, I asked the question, uh, yeah, but what if, you know, creatures don't cooperate? Or what if you and I are cooperating the best we can, but our cells are not? Or we're in a situation, an environment that is, you know, not great and we're going to suffer, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any hope for a person who may be doing the best she can to cooperate with God, but other elements of her body or her environment uh, aren't conducive or aren't cooperating. And I think this idea that we're either souls or spiritual bodies helps us overcome all kinds of questions about uh, why or how we can overcome the lack of healing in this life and live a life of bliss in the next. Mm -hmm. Let me follow up on that for a moment because, I mean, yeah. a, a, a criticism that I can imagine arising here is that you were extending the timeline uh, in a way that, that dodges the fundamental question of, you know, divine justice. So in other words, uh, you know, God either can't or doesn't, we'll say can't for this one, uh, solve the, these problems here, but on the longer timeline, eventually God does solve the problem. So therefore, uh, in their, you know, limited span of time, they become non-problems. Uh, I don't think that's where you're trying to go, but respond to that criticism in case some of our listeners are thinking that direction. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, some people think they solve the problem of evil by just saying, look, you'll get the answer after you die. You know, after you die, all in, all, all's well that ends well. Right. Um, I mean, this seems to be the, the poetic rationality behind the millennium in the apocalypse or the book of Revelation. Yeah, it's definitely one interpretation of it, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not appealing to that pie in the sky by and by, just, you know, you think it's bad now, it's just going to be all great in the end, because mm -hmm. God's going to unilaterally do it, because I don't have a God who can single-handedly or unilaterally do it. But I do have a God who never gives up. Mm -hmm. most, most theologies, if they believe in life after death, have some kind of judgment where God either send some people to hell for eternity, which I don't think is loving, or annihilate some of them, which I don't think is loving, or just says, all the, all the income free, it's a massive universalism, and people have to go to heaven, as it to, so to speak, even though they don't want to, and despite what anything they ever did in the past. And that, to me, denies any kind of meaningful choice that we make in this world. Mm -hmm. So the God I believe in continues to work in the afterlife, continues to call, continues to love, continues to work on any kind of healing that needs to occur 
And I think those who cooperate with this God really do find ultimate and full healing. Okay. Well, I want to turn to the fourth belief because I want to get all five of these kind of out on the table. Uh, <laughs> namely, God squeezes good from bad. You begin with uh, Genesis 50, 20, which is where I tend to start when I you know, want to have this conversation about human evil and divine goodness. Uh, but then you turn to Ephesians 5.20 for a discussion of the Greek preposition huper. And I'll go ahead and apologize to listeners who don't like extended conversations about Greek. We're about to have one. <laughs> now, to be sure, many uses of that preposition do connote for the good of, as you say. But in other cases, like Ephesians 1.16, the preposition seems to connote for in the sense that many translations of Ephesians 5.20 present. So what case would you make for your translation rather than the traditional, you know, King James rooted translation of Hooper here? And feel free to fill in background because I just made a big leap over a lot of your argument. Yeah, that's, uh, okay. <laughs> well, okay. So the, the major argument of the chapter is that God doesn't will or want evil, but God does work with the evil God didn't want to squeeze good out of the bad. And so, you know, I used a, a, an illustration of a famous uh, Christian named Johnny uh, Erickson Tata, who thinks that God uh, really did want her to get paralyzed mm -hmm. because God had, you know, a part of this great plan that ended up her doing all kinds of good things. And I want to affirm all the good things that she has done and the good person she's become without saying God wanted or even allowed the horrific thing that led to her paralysis. So my, my claim is God squeezes good from the bad God didn't want in the first place. And this particular issue with uh, Ephesians 5.20, uh, I'm talking about uh, a claim in which Paul says two things. In one passage he says, we ought to be thankful in all things. Mm -hmm. And another passage, he says, we ought to be thankful for all things. And it's that for in which this word hooper is, uh, mm -hmm. uh, is mentioned. Now, as you rightly say, that word can be translated in various ways. So why think we ought to privilege or use one meaning of the word here? Right. You got to make some kind of choice. Why this one? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And the way that most people, when they read that word, we should mm -hmm. thank God for everything. Most people think, well, that means we ought to thank God for the evil we just endured. And I'm saying, you know, there's another way to think about this word for, and that is to think of it in terms of for the benefit of. So, you know, we do things for the good of our kids or we do things for the good of our nation or whatever. That sense of for is not, uh, you know, we're a causal kind of thing from the past. It's an action for the future, the good in the future. Mm -hmm. But the basic question you're asking is why choose one over the other? And um, let me begin by answering that by saying there's a dirty little secret that most Christians I know do not know. And that is that every translator of the Bible, every team of translators comes to the Bible with theological assumptions that even they don't know, and they get played out in the choices they make when they translate the words. I've got those assumptions. Everybody's got them. Sure. And, and, and I, listeners, if you want to hear a conversation about this, go back to my interview with David Bentley Hart on his recent New Testament translation. We, we get into the weeds on these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. 
So what I'm trying to do is ask this question. Okay, we've all got these assumptions, yeah, but is there a way to try to take what we think are the broadest, most obvious, most uh, general views of Scripture, the things, the themes that seem to me to seem to come up most often and seem to be clearest, um, and then use those as we try to interpret the other parts of Scripture. And for me, as I so lay my cards on the table, I think the themes of love come up first and foremost. Uh, not every passage of Scripture, I think, paints to a perfect God of perfect love, but I think the majority do. I think the fullest revelation of God's characters in Jesus Christ, who loves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So for me, I've got this, you know, love hermeneutic, and I'm not the only one to have this, but you know, this is the way I'm trying to read Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so when I come up to a choice like this on this particular word and think, okay, if I interpret it in the way that most people understand it, which is we ought to thank God for the evil, well, that sounds like God is the source of evil, but that doesn't fit with the view of God as being loving. But if we go with this other thing, that in the midst of the suffering, we can be thankful and that thankfulness can benefit others. We can, our thankfulness can be in some way helpful well, that actually does fit this overall themes that I find in Scripture. And so I'm not saying this, trying to say that my way is the only way, but I am trying to say that if you take my particular approach to this, I think you have a more coherent way of thinking about uh, these passages. Right. And, and a lot of our listeners will know that I teach uh, Old English for foreign language credit. Uh, wow. So I'm always teaching my students that every translation is their responsibility uh, I tell yeah. them that I, I, I'm trying to make them existentialists, even as I try to teach them medieval language. So yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, and you also, you know, uh, I assume you, uh, was it in this chapter where I look at Romans 8.28 and look at four different translations? Yeah, you want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, well, that's a, a really great example. Uh, if some of your listeners want to think about how theological presuppositions or theological assumptions that translators have shape the words they choose for a text. In this particular example, I take one of the more famous passages of Scripture to those who wrestle with the problem of evil, which in the King James says, um, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Mm -hmm. And I look at four different translations of that. And each of the translations, if you look at the words carefully, suggests a particular way of thinking about God and the God-creature relationship. And I think the four have very different meanings because of the word choices the translators use, and I have my own preference among the four. Certainly, certainly. Well, Tom, let's get the fifth belief out here on the table, and that is God needs our co cooperation. Uh, you make a distinction between God's existence uh, which you affirm as necessary rather than contingent. And then on the other hand, the history of God's acts, which you insist involves necessary human cooperation. So in your view, what problems arise when you tell stories of a God who could act independently of creaturely agents? Well, I want to actually um, adjust your question a little bit. Please do. I think because I actually do think God can act without human or creaturely cooperation. So I think God exists necessarily and acts necessarily. What I don't think 
is that God can bring about results in the relationship unilaterally or single-handedly okay. or ind independently. And so that's important to me because I don't want to make it sound as if, you know, God couldn't do anything unless there were, you know, creatures allowed that to happen. I think God is always acting. Um, and maybe here, here's a, an illustration of this. Um, when I ask my wife to marry me, I acted. She didn't force me, and you know, it was a decision I made. But in order for this marriage to be, for this us to get engaged at that time, and then for us to have a healthy marriage, she had to respond, and you know, she has to act, and I have to respond. And so the action itself isn't controlled by the other, but the kind of loving relationship we want does require a positive response from creation. So in this last chapter, when I talk about God needing our cooperation, I'm making the claim, and it's a bold one, I admit, it's radical, that God simply can't get things done in the world unless creatures cooperate or the conditions are conducive to that. God can't, for instance, bring about the final victory of all creation unless there's cooperation with us. And God can't do that, not because God's some sort of wimp, but because God is fundamentally loving and love is fundamentally relational and, as I see it, always uncontrolling. So the kinds of goals God has for the consummation of all things, to use more technical language, it relies upon proper or positive creaturely response. Okay. Well, Tom, I wanted to get all five of these beliefs out on the table because before I have my Agrippa moment, I want our listeners to hear your project. Uh, the, the, this is the almost thou persuadest me to be process moment. <laughs> and like I said, I've read three or four of your books and I enjoy them. And there are parts of me certainly that want to get on board with this, but a couple of thoughts keep haunting my reading. So I'm going to finish Good. with those yeah. and let you respond to them. So awesome. here's the first. Without a doubt, your theolo theological project sets its sights on removing moral blame from God, and you're persistent enough as a writer and a thinker to root out that blame at every turn. The problem is, as I read it, is that by the time you're done, God stands as a being to be pitied, not the strong fortress to whom the desperate can pray for help in, in times of need, as we discussed a moment ago. So I want to leave you some space to answer this. Is there any point in praying to God if God is, as Tom Ward writes about God? Mm, yeah, good question. Not only do I think there's a point, but I don't think you should pray to other gods. That's good, <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> um, you know, the classic, the common view of God is a God who either foreordains or foreknows the future and makes petitionary prayer then, in my view, meaningless. If God already knows what's going to happen, uh, it makes no sense to ask God to do something else. Um, but even if you don't think God foreknows the future or foreordains it, if you think God can do whatever God wants to do, and if you think God always loves and always wants to do the very best, then whether you pray or not, God's going to do the very best God can do, assuming God is loving, because God can do it unilaterally, single-handedly. Our contributions don't really matter. There's no 
real reason to pray a petitionary kind of prayer. You know, other prayers might be different, but petitionary prayers, I think they don't make much sense. But in my scheme, our prayers open up new possibilities for God in the world. The God I believe in experiences time sequentially. And that means the future is really open for this God. God can't know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future because the future is unknowable to anyone, including God. And that means that my actions actually can have an impact upon this God who is passable and who can't control things in the world. Now, of course, this means that some kind of prayers that some people pray are not going to make any sense. For instance, if I pray, God, force Uncle Joe to become a Christian. Well, God's not going to, quote, answer that prayer because God can't control anyone, including Uncle Joe. Mm -hmm. And if you think that makes a lot of sense, then ask yourself, or then you might understand my position that I'm taking this idea that God can't force Uncle Joe, and I'm applying it throughout all creation. Mm -hmm. However, when I'm praying for Uncle Joe, I can say things like this, God, I really want Uncle Joe to become a Christian. Give me insights on how I might cooperate with you in the work you want to do to persuade, to lure, to command, to call Uncle Joe to have a right relationship with God or with you, with whatever. So my prayer is going to actually make a difference, not only to me, but to God, because the future is open and God can't control. God can't just up and decide to do something, whether I pray or not. Okay. And the other... That's, <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Now, the, the other Agrippa moment, like I said, I want to leave this space open for you to respond, is that as I've read your books, I get the sense that I would have to reinterpret so much in the Bible. You know, you talk about the, the majority witness... I still want to hold on to the minority witness. I want to hold on to the Exodus and the return from Babylon to the book of Job, the resurrection, several episodes in Acts, that it would seem that if I talked about a God who cannot get results unilaterally, I'm trying to use your phrases here instead of mine here, uh, I would have to read in yeah. ways that are acrobatic at best hermeneutically. Now, as you and I have talked about before, uh, I don't think you're alone in this. I, I have the same concern when I read Luther on the bondage of the will or any number of Calvinists on divine sovereignty uh, and all sorts of theologies that don't want any contradictions in their systems, I think, end up taking the Bible and making it bend into shapes that the Bible doesn't want to bend into. So once again, I want to step back and let you answer as fully as you see fit. Does this theology allow the faithful to receive the Bible on its own terms, or is that a trade that process thought is willing to make in order to avoid contradictions? I think my view of God fits the overall drift or scope and tenor, to use the language of John Wesley, of the mm -hmm. Bible. However, I also think that it doesn't fit our typical interpretations of many parts of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, do we have to have those particular interpretations? Let me give you an example of a very, I mean, most 
professional theologians come to the Bible with a particular view of God's power that I don't think the Bible supports. They come to the Bible believing God can control if God wants to. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a single passage in the entire Bible that explicitly says God did something and there was no creaturely contribution. That includes the creation of the universe. That includes the resurrection of Jesus. That includes hardening Pharaoh's heart. None of them explicitly say God alone did this and there was no creaturely contribution. Now, a ton of them, in fact, I was reading this morning uh, in the lectionary passage, uh, particular passage in Psalms, a ton of them say something like, God did X, or God did Y, you know, God mm -hmm, mm -hmm. raised up the oppressed, or God, you know, whatever. And I think what a lot of people do, again, both lay and professional theologians, they see the phrase, God did X, and they subconsciously interpret that as God did it single-handedly. God did it unilaterally. Mm -hmm. didn't actually say that, but that's the way they come to the biblical text with this assumption in the back of their mind that I don't think the biblical text supports, and they read into it. But think about, think about the way we use our language day to day. You know, my favorite illustration of this is a couple years ago when the New England Patriots came back in the Super Bowl and beat the Atlanta Falcons. You know, the headline says, Brady wins another Super Bowl. Well, anybody who knows football knows that Tom Brady was not the only player on the Patriots that day. Yeah, the, the Atlanta coach helped him a great deal. <laughs> exactly. Calling pass plays when he's up three touchdowns. Yes. You, you've hit a sore point here, Tom. You've hit a sore point. <laughs> There's all kinds of other factors and actors involved in the Patriots winning that Super Bowl. Now, maybe, and I actually probably think this is true, I doubt the Patriots could have won had they not had Tom Brady as their quarterback, even with the stupid mistakes the Falcons did and all the other great things the Patriots did as other teammates in. But he's just an amazing player. So to say Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl is not only true in the sense that Tom Brady is, was on the Super Bowl winning team, but also it may be that Tom Brady was a primary cause in the winning of that Super Bowl. But if you look at that line and you think it has to mean Tom Brady was the only cause in the Patriots winning that Super Bowl, well, that makes no sense. And yet we go to the Bible and with this presupposition that God has, can act as a sufficient cause, can single-handedly bring about results, we read a phrase like, God did X, and we think, oh, that must have been just God then. Instead of thinking, well, maybe there was creaturely contribution, like so many other parts of Scripture talk about, even in this passage where those creatures aren't mentioned. And this actually moves to the other side, too. Sometimes humans are mentioned as doing something good, and God is never mentioned in the story. But we who are theologians want to say, well, you know, God wasn't mentioned, but God is a sustaining cause. God is the, the source of all good. So God was, of course, involved. But no mention of God is in the whole book of Ruth, for instance. But we, almost all of us who believe in God think God was active. So in that case, we have this certain assumption that we bring to the text that we have to have God's causal powers, even if God is not mentioned. Why can't we also come to the text where it says only mentions God and doesn't mention creatures and say, yeah, well, maybe this God is a God of love who always 
provides cooperation. And when it says God did X, that also means that creation or creatures were cooperating to make this happen. Well, you and Trip Fuller, who are my two favorite process people, like to turn to the domestic for your examples. So let me turn to the domestic to offer an (laughs) objection. Uh, If I tell my 13-year-old son to uh, pick the clothes up off the bathroom floor, which is a daily task that is before me, and he comes back to me and says, well, yes, I did pick up the clothes off the bathroom floor, and then later on I find out that his hands never touched them, but he hustled his little sister into picking them up, I'm going to credit a certain dishonesty to him. Is that, I'm going to guess you're going to say that's not the same thing as what we're talking about here. Why not? Well, one of the big differences between your son and God is that God is omnipresent. Okay. Another big difference between your son and God is, at least most Christians think, God is the source of all that's good and evil. You know, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, or, you know, I could quote a bunch of different lines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that in the scenario you lay out, your son... Uh, may have persuaded your daughter to pick it up through whatever means he had. Hopefully there were positive means like giving her some money instead of negative, like I'm going to punch your nose if you don't. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) the God who's omnipresent could actually be involved in all things in ways that are non-coercive and, I think, always loving. So Mm -hmm. the difference would be that... um, the God who is omnipresent at all levels of experience and is, I think, the source of all good can rightly be credited for the lion's share of all the good that happens in the world without being credited for all things because God's not the only actor and also blamed for the negative things that happen. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Tom, here at the end, I want to zoom out and you know, okay. in our in our ongoing conversation and in conversations I have with friends of mine who are Molinists or Calvinists or whatever else, um, what stands out to me in these exchanges is the rhetorical character of theology. We're always trying to convince each other to situate elements of the of the tradition otherwise than we might situate them. And honestly, I think that's what keeps the enterprise fascinating. You know, I mean, this is why people can devote a lifetime to teaching and writing about and reading theology. Uh, And I'd like to hear you comment on the practice of theology more broadly. Um, You know, as much time as you spend talking to people like me who just can't seem to be convinced, what good things do you see as emerging from this practice that we call theology? Well, I... (laughs) I could name a bunch of them, but let me start with something that sort of affects me personally. Um, I I said earlier, I don't have everything figured out. Um, I learn from these kinds of interactions. I've learned things from our interaction today. And so even though I have some convictions that stay pretty consistent, I change uh, some of the things I think or tweak them ways to explain them better and so part of the things part of the reasons i enjoy talking with people who don't agree with me totally which is you know most of the people in the world Mm -hmm. um, is that it helps me to hone my own thinking sometimes change my thinking sometimes provide new ways to articulate my views better Um, i think that's a valuable enterprise i think above all 
well, I don't just think, I'm convinced that above all, I want to live a life of love. That's what is at the very center of what I do, whether it's writing theology or hanging out with my family or spending time at the library or hiking in the wilderness. I want to be a person who lives a life of love. And part of loving means being open and learning from and listening to not only those who think kind of like we do, but also who think differently than we do. It's an act of uh, hospitality. It's an act of generosity. It's an act of humility to say, look, you can contribute to me. Now, sometimes that process is admittedly painful. People aren't very nice to me (laughs) and not very nice to you and everyone. Uh, So I'm not saying that the uh, life of love is always a gentle or risk-free kind of life. But at the end of the day, I think it's the most meaningful, at least the most meaningful I've discovered. And it's a very at the very heart of who I want to be and how I want to live. Very good. Well, Tom, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word today. Uh, what do you want our listeners thinking about the Bible, theology, process thought, uh, divine capability, or whatever else as we head for the door today? Well, I don't know if I have a really profound final word. Um, I would say that um, you've mentioned process thought a few times, and I have definitely been influenced by that. But I like to think of my views as not fitting neatly in process thought or many, even any others. I, I use the word open and relational theology to describe my views. And if I if I get a chance to be really technical and geeky, I'll say my view is an essential kenosis view or an uncontrolling love of God view. Uh, it has been shaped by and formed by my thinking with the openness and process people. But um, I guess I want to mention that because I think it's important to draw from whatever resource, tradition, thinker, we think we can find good things. And I think we need to do that and still try to keep coherency. It's not just sort of a grab bag and an eclectic sort of a bunch of ideas that don't fit together. But if we find something good in whatever tradition, whatever even religion that we think helps us make sense of the world, make sense of God, help us live a life of love, I think we ought to be brave enough, bold enough to draw from those resources, even if uh, folks may not may be suspicious of the particular labels that we're looking at. Tom Ward, thank you for coming back on Christian Humanist Profiles. Hey, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Nathan. Thanks so much. And listeners, thank you for downloading and listening. Thank you for the emails that you'll write responding to this. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.